Hey, I'm sex, love, and relationship therapist, Dr. Laura Berman. And for the past 30 years, I've been helping people just like you learn to love and be loved better. Here on the Language of Love Conversations, I'm talking to some of the world's most influential and revolutionary experts, thought leaders, spiritual teachers, and celebrities about love, sex, and relationships from a mind, body, and spirit perspective. And that way, my goal is to awaken your mind, body, and soul. It's time to become fluent in the language of love. Stephen Washington is a movement master, author, and recovery advocate who is passionate about helping others navigate toward a happier and healthier life. And he has had a successful career as a contemporary dancer. He's worked for the New York City Opera, Metropolitan Opera, Broadway in Disney's Lion King, and also struggled with addiction. And one of the keys to his recovery was through his study of Chinese medicine, discovering Qigong and healing touch. And those things were really not only key to his recovery, but key to what has become his life's work. Stephen is also the husband of one of our faves on the language of love, Lee Harris. I interviewed him not too long ago about his newest book, The Conversation with the Z's. Uh, Lee is a channel and a psychic and an intuitive. So the two of them are quite a powerhouse. In this episode, we're diving into Stephen's work and some of the amazing lessons he's learned that he's sharing with us about how to move through tough times, whether you're struggling with addiction, recovery, or just someone who's living in the world right now, we all need more support. So how to change your life, how to end feelings of isolation, how to work with your triggers, how to process shame, how to use movement as a path to healing. I also get into it with Stephen about what it's like to be married to a channel. I've always been curious, so I'm asking all the good questions on this episode of The Language of Love. Welcome, Stephen Washington. I am so glad that you're able to join us on The Language of Love. I wanted to get into with you your book, which is really wonderful, is called Recovering You, Soul Care and Mindful Movement for Overcoming Addiction. And it's sort of you know, while there was a tremendous amount of movement strategies, and we're going to get into some of your specific strategies in a little bit, it was also kind of in my mind, as someone who is not a recovering addict, but certainly loves a lot of recovering addicts and active addicts, I'm a recovering codependent. So I guess that's an addiction too, isn't it? But to me, it's really a guidebook for kind of coming home to yourself and learning how to be with yourself in a way that I loved how you were describing what's really an addiction. I think you were talking about your story, which I want to ask you about, but how for you addiction was an attempt to kind of calibrate your body's energy either and your emotions, either by numbing yourself out with substances or taking your energy up with substances, right? Because you couldn't internally calibrate like many of us. I love the way you put that because to me, that is the core. Like I've always said, what you're doing with addiction is you're either running towards something or running away from something, but you're running, right? You're not being with yourself. And this was a really beautiful way to explain it, like inability to kind of calibrate. So to me, that's, you know, whether you're consider yourself an addict or not, that was one of the most beautiful parts of this book to me. And and I guess what you teach in general is that it was, and we'll talk about some of the different aspects that really stood out to me, but I'm wondering if you can comment a little bit on that. Thank you. Great way to begin this lovely conversation. For me, my using alcohol and drugs and cigarettes and at certain points food was definitely an attempt to self-regulate. I did not know that that's what I was doing, but I was trying to bring about some level of peace, some level of balance, some sense of harmony within me because I was anything but that. And it's only now in hindsight that I can see that that's what I was doing. And now I have healthier ways in which to do that. And I think that that's something that we're all trying to do in our own way, shape or form and to varying degrees of success. 
uh, <laughs> or failure. <laughs> or failure. Yeah, yes. yeah. But we're all just trying to be okay within ourselves and try to find some way to navigate life because life is tricky. Life is challenging. Life can be scary. Life can be joyous. It can be heartbreaking. There's so many things. And we all need ways to help ourselves, self-care. Ultimately, I think what's at the core of the book is self-care. And we all need to practice self-care. And most of us don't do enough of it. And I wanted to provide tools and practices to help people to help themselves. There's so many things within the book. I, I like to call the tools like tools that you put in a toolbox. But the thing about tools is they don't work unless you pick them up and use them and do them consistently. So uh, this is definitely a, co a collection of tools and processes to help us be more in harmony with ourselves and with the world around us. Yeah. And during these times, it feels like more than ever. I know every hundred years or so this happens in one form or another, but this is our lifetime's time, it feels like, where all hell is breaking loose on every level from the macro to the micro within our own homes. I mean, just there's so much happening right now and so much uncertainty and so much upheaval and so much division and so much polarization and so much anger and so much anxiety. And, you know, it just feels so everything feels so heightened right now. And to me, these strategies are about learning to kind of internally reference your peace, your stability, your clarity, so that you don't have to numb out or externalize it. But I also want to highlight, and before we even dive into all of that, I just want to talk to you specifically about addiction, because in my mind, there are quote unquote hard addictions, let's call them. I mean, what's hard, what's soft, but there's hard addictions and soft addictions. Like hard addictions would be gambling, sex, drugs, alcohol, maybe even love addiction and soft addictions, social media, shopping, work, uh, work. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I feel like we are all myself included. Like I am not only recovering codependent, which as I said earlier, is definitely a form of addiction, but also I've learned to manage it, but I definitely online shopping is one of the ways I numb out. The way I manage it is I still do it, but I put everything in my cart and I don't push buy. And then a few days later, I go back to the cart. And of course, I don't want anything that's in it still, or I don't need anything like I needed in that moment. Like that's the way I've learned to not spend all our money on addictive shopping to numb myself out, but I'm still doing it right at times. I notice now these days, even I, who I feel am pretty, I've done a lot of work to learn to hold my center, even now during these times have been, you know, so I just was wondering if we can talk a little bit about that. Cause I know you're noticing that too. We haven't even, we will be getting in because I'm, I have to talk to you about your husband as well and about your relationship. Cause he's one of my favorite humans. And I know that he talks a lot about what's happening in the world right now, but I'm wondering what your take on all of this is and how that plays into what you're teaching. Really good question. Here's what I think. I think that the world is crazy. Um, <laughs> the world has been crazy. It's always been crazy, except we know about all the crazy now. Ah, the veil has been lifted. Yeah, because of social media, because of the news, 24-hour news cycle, it's everywhere. It's constant. And I think that the world has always been this balance of good and bad, peace and craziness. We just know about all the itty bitty bits of it. Yeah. And so it's a matter of how do we protect ourselves from, from all the information, all the stimuli, uh, because it's overwhelming. It's mm -hmm. overwhelming if there's no filter, if there are no barriers. So that's, that's something that I could, I could speak to for sure. And also I think that they're like, you talk about hard addiction, soft addictions. And I talk about this in the book, my story, your story, anyone's story, we're not going to, we're not going to be able to completely match one another's another story is in terms of events and details, but we can meet each other on the level of the heart and the emotions because what drugs and alcohol and cigarettes and food and, and all that did for me and some of the harmful ramifications of those behaviors and dependencies, beneath all that was a sense of shame. 
was grief, sadness, isolation, anger, frustration, all those things. And if we all look at what's underneath all of our dependencies, you'll find the same stuff. Yep. You'll find the same stuff. Same little monsters, same little gremlins. Yeah. Yeah. And all of the practices that I've learned from being in recovery and everything else that I've done, like you, I spent a lot of time working on myself in my life and I'm 51. I've been sober for almost a little over 20 years and I'm still working. I'm still working and more things are being revealed and more layers are being peeled back. So the recovery isn't a destination. It's a journey. Amen. We're, yeah, it's never ending. I mean, that was something I had to really understand at a certain point too. And not only understand, but fully embrace that, you know, if you're not healing, you're in the ground, <laughs> like basically, yeah. you know, it's until I'm sure we do it on the other side too. We keep healing. <laughs> We'll see. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to see what happens. But okay, so I want to unpack both of those things you said, because I took some notes of, of some of the things you mentioned that I wanted to dive into some of the topics of shame and isolation and some of the strategies you talk about. But let's talk about the first part, what your advice is, because it sounds sound like you have some beneficial advice about how to manage all of this crazy, divisive input that we're being surrounded by, how to sort of protect yourself, as you said. Yeah. Self-care practices are really important. Paying, keeping the focus more on yourself than on the world around you. And to hear myself say that, I know that there are going to be some people who will think, well, that's just selfish if you do that. But here's the deal. You can't do anything for the world or anyone else in the world unless you take care of yourself first. You have no use to anyone if you're out there running yourself ragged on fumes, trying to help people or help others when you don't have anything to give to yourself. So it's really important to do that. Also, it's really important to be clear about your boundaries, clear about your boundaries when it comes to people, people that you surround yourself with. I think there needs to be a a level of reciprocity in our relationships. And sometimes relationships can be more heavy on one side or the other. And can you find balance in those relationships? Because I feel like our relationships need to feed us in some respect as well, but also we need to be able to give of ourselves too for it to be balanced. I also think in my own experience, it's been important for me to just pay attention to what kind of information I allow into my my energy field. I can't watch the news all the time. Me either. I can't watch it at all. I have my husband report the highlights to me because I can't even watch, not only because it's so traumatizing, but because I get furious no matter what network I watch. And I've watched them all about how freaking biased, how the same story they like twist and turn to their own agenda. And then I'm like, what are you doing? You're adding to the division. I get like all upset. So I don't (laughs) even watch it. I like news or information that's that's delivered to me with a little bit of humor. Oh, that's attached a good, to it. Yes. Like I love the ladies on The View because they talk about <laughs> hot topics and they talk about politics. I used to say that I get my news from Saturday Night Live. <laughs> hey, you know, because within all the within all the jokes, there's a little bit of humor. There's a little bit of reality. There's a little bit of truth. So I take a little bit from that. And, you know, occasionally I'll watch a, a news segment here and there, or occasionally I'll watch it, I'll read an article, but I don't let too much of that in because I've had to learn to just let let go. And also I have to be mindful of when in the day I do that. It's not good for me to do that late in the day as I'm trying to unwind. Mm -hmm. Because then you go to sleep and start thinking about it all. Yeah. So, Yeah. yeah. And I think also limiting because it's not just watching the news. And this is kind of the irony is that we're numbing out from the chaos using social media usually, mm-hmm. but then social media is full of divisive and feeding you. The algorithm is feeding you more of your own viewpoint. And a lot of that is divisive. I mean, I always say, if you want to know what you're unconsciously manifesting in your life, look at the Explorer page on your social media, because the algorithm will give you things on the Explorer page that are consistent with where you've been putting your attention. That's so Um, true. That's so true. I also think that, and this is going to go back to my 12-step recovery days, there's an acronym called HALT, 
that warns us all to not let ourselves get too hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. When we are too much of any one of those things, we are more likely to search outside of ourselves mm-hmm. to fill some sort of hole, some sort of space, and really making sure that you're, you eat when you're hungry. If you're angry, you're lonely, talk to someone, connect to someone. Um, if you're tired, take a nap. If we do all those little bits of self-care, that puts us in a very different position, a very different state of being. And we're all able to navigate all the challenges that we're talking about in life and living in the, on this very dense plane if we practice self-care in that way. Yeah, I think that's so true. And some of the other practices or issues that you talk about, which I think are super, super important, is isolation, which you refer to, like the loneliness or just it's being unconscious or being in pain, even forget addiction, just struggling. I mean, the world, we're more connected than ever before electronically or digitally, but I feel like we're more isolated than ever before as well. And I love the discussion. You, you, you spoke a lot, not only about isolation and the risks of it and why it happens, right? We isolate to avoid conflict or to hide our shame or because, or to just be able to feed our addiction without interference, right? But that isolation is so damaging. So I wanted to ask you about that. And also really important because I feel like what's more important or as important as talking about isolation is our strategies for building connections, building communities, because people are craving this and they join an online community, which is a place to start. But we really need human to human connection. We are designed for that. Our systems need in-person connection. So talk about that to me. Well, I I thought that isolation was a great place to start in the book uh, and talk about it because I feel as though isolation is something that feeds addiction. I think isolation is something that feeds a lot of the mental challenges we have in the world because we feel like we are alone. We feel like no one else will understand us. We feel as though we are living on our own island. And like you said, we are designed for, for a community, for a connection. Human beings are tribal. And when we all thrive on a sense of belonging, and that's really important. And there's so many studies that show that when we have social support, the benefits to it are just uh, countless, just in the ways that it enhances our own physical health and well-being. It helps us to manage stress and the challenges of life. It helps us to manage that. And so when we have that kind of support, it's less taxing on the systems. And it's so beneficial to our mental health to have connection, to have people who are able to help us when we need help doing things, even daily tasks, or when we need financial help, if there's people there who could support us because money is a very big trigger. Money is a very complicated subject. And many of us in the world, there's a big talk about the haves and the have nots There's a great divide between, between the two. And so being able to support one another in those ways is very important. Just feeling heard. It's important to feel heard and to be seen. So many people feel invisible, like their needs don't matter. And just companionship, having people to play with and laugh with and and touch and connect with and feel like physically, not just intellectually and visually like we do digitally, but to really be in the energy of people who we feel connected to and supported by and aligned with. Well, just think about this. We think about just in the development of a child, how important touch is between a caregiver and a child how the caregiver helps the child to learn how to regulate themselves just by touch or just certain visual cues, the sound of a voice, all those things where we're, we're dependent upon early on in life that gives us a great foundation. It helps us to wire the brain in a certain way. And I think even as we grow older, we're still dependent upon those aspects of community and connection. But something happens along the way for many of us is that we get disconnected from that. And one of the ways that we we cope with getting disconnected from each other is through substances or other dependencies 
ways to regulate ourselves, ways to check out, to distract ourselves, to numb. To numb out from the mm-hmm. loneliness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what are your tips for creating or finding community? Because I know you share a lot of good ones in, in your book. I think the first place to start is the awareness that you need it and that you would benefit from it. That uh, and that you, there's a willingness to to seek it out, to be open to it. For me, when I began my recovery journey, I found community in twelve step recovery, and thank goodness because being able to go to various rooms and hear people share their experience, strength, and hope, and for me to be able to identify with them and to 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 know that I was not alone was really important and it didn't even matter if I raised my hand to share or sometimes I would raise my hand to share just to say I'm Stephen I don't really know I'm really nervous I don't know what to say I'm just acknowledging that I'm that I'm here and that is enough to start I talk about in the book how there's so many ways that we can start to create more social support for ourselves and part of it is just like leaving the house Leaving the house, going for a walk. Step one. <laughs> what happens when you leave the house and you go for a walk? Maybe you'll run into a stranger and you can have a, an exchange of hello to someone you don't know or a hello to someone that you do know and, and have a moment of connection on the street. That's just incredible. That's one way to start to build a community, to build some sort of social support. Following your instincts and your intuitions about what it is that you uh, are drawn to naturally what it is that you like to do. That's a great way to begin to find ways in which to connect with other people. Like a class or a club, like a Sierra club or a knitting class or a dance Absolutely. class or something yeah. else. Yeah. I mean, I've made a lot of friends in yoga classes and breath work classes and the things that I'm into as well. So yeah, that's a great tip too. What else you got? What else? If you have an animal, if you have a dog, my God, there's nothing like, there's nothing so... Uh, more connective than having a dog and walking your dog and then meeting other people with dogs. And then next thing you know, you go to the dog park. It's a way to pick up potential partners and friends. (laughs) (laughs) All of it, all of it. You know, spiritual centers, that's one way also that I found community as well. And I never imagined that would be the case for me. In my recovery, uh, my 12-step recovery was my spiritual center. But around the time when my father passed away, I was maybe eight years sober and I started to go to spiritual centers and attend services. And that was miraculous for me, just being able to put myself in the room with all that energy was really important. So those are really great places and things to do to begin to start to build social support, you know, and also Therapy has been a big part of my life. Having social support can also come in the form of counseling, working with a counselor. If I talk about this in the first chapter, when it comes to loneliness and isolation, one way to not feel so lonely and isolated is to is through body work, working with a body worker, someone that you trust, and having receiving touch and receiving that kind of connection. There's that's twofold. You have the breaking out of isolation through touch but also touch being a way to connect to other, to another human being in a loving, nurturing way. Yeah. And by healing touch, you mean like massage or even Reiki, although they don't really, you know, they're more touching above you than touching you, but any kind of healing hands kind of stuff is really, we're not talking about going to a sex surrogate or something or, you know, we're talking about, (laughs) we're talking about, that kind, the body work of of the yeah, healing body work exactly listen regardless of your sexual orientation or your gender or your relationship status every single one of us has struggled at one point or another with a lackluster or disconnected sex life or difficulty finding the partner that we most desire so i have designed an amazing program for you 7 days to better sex Each day, you're going to get a video and an information packet all designed to help you jumpstart your love life. Just go to www.drlauraberman.com. And you alluded to this in terms of the spiritual, spiritual centers, I think you were talking about. And you wrote a lot about this, actually more toward the end of the book, but it's something that I personally am really, really interested in. I know 
many of my peeps are as well. It's something that I've been working on in many years, having been for many years, having been raised in a pretty, very secular home where God was something very abstract and rarely talked about except a few times a year. And then it was more like, I better ask forgiveness for all the mistakes I've made and sins I've committed because I was in trouble in the book of life or whatever it was. My parents were God to me. They were the source of my safety and center and protection and worth. And it wasn't until probably my mid to late 40s that I started a spiritual quest of seeking God, spirit, Allah, Jesus. You know, everyone can pick their own title, but seeking that deeper connection that is two ways, right? That isn't some abstract concept. And that also having that faith, which to me is absolutely a muscle, but having that faith that you are, that that power is there and that whatever that name for it is that you, you know, have, and that you are held by that and supported by that and connected and that that which is right is unfolding. And that it's like a two-way exchange. It's not you just praying to some abstract man on a cloud, but that there is this co-creation, co, you know, not co-support, what you're supporting, the spirit doesn't need your support, but you receive that support and love and connection. And to me, you know, that has been such a journey and what I'm still figuring out about how to build faith. So I'm wondering if you can share what you've learned about that. So important. And I, and it makes me think about how much my spiritual life has grown over the last 20 years and how it's just continuing to grow uh, in ways that I just could not even imagine. I was just having a conversation earlier today about faith with someone and they asked me, how do I talk to this power greater than myself? And it's like, I talk to it just like I'm talking to you. Mm-hmm. Like those are the greatest moments that I have with my higher powers when I relate to it, like I'm relating to you and being as, as, as authentically me as I can possibly be. And I use words, which I think is important because it's just important for me so I can hear myself speak and hear what it is that's going on in my head and my heart. But my higher power knows before I even utter a word. Right. Uh, it's that deep. It's that meaning, meaningful. It's that personal. When I first began my spiritual journey of sobriety, I already believed in a higher power, but I didn't think that my higher power believed in me. In some ways, I kind of felt like I was forgotten. I was still living with the higher power that I grew up with in Southern Baptist churches and where I didn't feel like I belonged because I was uh, gay. Mm-hmm. I, even before I knew what being gay was, I felt like I was different. And I knew that my difference wasn't something that was going to be embraced in the walls of that church. Right. And, to, and that was all you knew of God. So, That's all I knew. So it wouldn't be embraced by God either in your mind, which unfortunately you you were the majority of kids. Yeah, yeah. And it wasn't until I found recovery and I was I was shown that having a higher power or some relationship with a higher power was going to help me in my recovery, is going to help me stay sober for a long time, hopefully the rest of my life. Uh, that it's just important to have that kind of connection. Not that it not that sobriety requires you to believe in a God. Lots of people are sober and they don't believe in a higher power. I don't believe in a God, but my definition of a higher power is all encompassing. It, it encompasses everything. It co- encompasses nature, love, music, art. My higher power encompasses like the, the energy I get from animals in my life too. So I'm able to tap into all of that and appreciate all of that and, and really work on being as open and receptive to what my higher power brings into my life. And that to trust that my higher power loves me unconditionally, loves me more than words can ever express, accepts me for exactly who I am. My higher power is funny as all hell. <laughs> How do you know it says funny things or just the things that happen are so ironic that you can't help but crack up? Basically, <laughs> all the above, all the above. And it just makes me crack up. So that's how I know it's real. 
Yeah. That's how I know it's real. And it's it's constantly changing and, un, and unfolding. And I love what I talked about in the book and what my friend Jennifer said for the people who maybe have a difficult time with the, with the concept of God or a higher power, that it doesn't really matter if you don't believe in a higher power because your higher power believes in you. And that there is there's a reason why you've made it as far as you have in your life and, and, and survived all the challenges that you have. And the higher power, the energy of it is wrapped up in all of it. And that it's okay to, to trust the process. And I feel as though my higher power uh, is the embodiment of that. Mm, that's beautiful. You know, I was thinking as you were talking, because my faith journey, I would say, really began in earnest a few years before my father died. And he died two or three years ago. So it was maybe five or six years ago at this point where I had started a spiritual journey way before that. But the idea of a two-way relationship with God, spirit, universe, what you know, non-denominational there. I was just starting to wrap my head around it. I think part of the reason I had a lot of resistance was not only because I'd never had a concept of that, but because I too was raised in, you know, the Bible belt as a Jewish girl from New York. My family moved down to Southeast Georgia when I was in middle school. So the entire community was Baptist and very religious and very prejudiced against anyone who wasn't. And so I experienced so much rejection and shame and humiliation and bullying that like, if I met someone who was a born again, Christian, like I was running the other direction. Cause to me that equaled nasty judge, which isn't fair. You know, I'm just telling you about my ignorant perception as a kid and as a, even a young adult. It uh, represented rejection and humiliation and ignorance to a certain degree of, in my opinion, of like only seeing one thing as correct. I mean, I had so many judgments. And then I met a beautiful soul <laughs> down in Georgia. God bless him. His name is Gregory Goodwill. And he was my, isn't that a great name? Yeah. Gregory Goodwill. Shout out to Gregory Goodwill. And he was my father's nurse, caretaker, basically. He was the RN that was taking care of my dad in the last few years of his life. And Gregory always had a Bible in his hand. And he asked me one day, we were sitting in a waiting room in a hospital, and he asked me about the difference between what Jews believed and what Christians believed. And I said, well, basically, the essential difference is that Christian, you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and Jews believe that Jesus was Jewish, which Christians do too, but that he was an amazing, sage, God-connected healer of the utmost degree, but was not God's child. And any more than any of the rest of us are, you know, or any less. So that opened this whole realm of conversations. And I'll never forget him saying to me, you know, and this is what really struck me and I've never forgotten. He goes, you know, God is my very, very, very best friend. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? God is your best friend. And we had so many conversations, but it was really ironically through him. He was part of that community. Not that he didn't ever reject. I mean, he was someone who was the complete opposite of what I had always experienced growing up in from people who believed what he believed or subscribed to what he believed. And he was really, I think, the catalyst for me starting to be like, okay, let me be open my heart to this. Not to, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a born again Christian. It's not about Christianity or choosing Jesus as my savior. It's not, you know, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that he was the beginning of my path of like even conceiving of the idea that this could be a two-way relationship. That's so beautiful. So shout out to Gregory Goodwill. Gregory Goodwill. <laughs> thank you for walking into Laura's, Laura's life. Yeah. <laughs> That's incredible. I love that. I love that. It's a powerful time when you're, when you're in the process of, of witnessing someone transitioning, leaving this, this plane and, and moving on to another it's a very tender time. And like you, I just had just such a, such a growth filled experience around that yeah. and just diving deeper into my own mortality and my own heart 
with it all. And, yeah. and I, and I grew so much because I started going to spiritual centers, but that shocked the living daylights out of me because I never would have imagined that I would be a regular churchgoer. I just did not envision. Yeah. Because you had been felt so rejected by it in the same way I did. But this place was very different. Yes. It's very different. It was so uh, open. It was so um, inclusive. It was yes. all about the music ministry. And the music was what really touched me, like bring me to tears. Mm -hmm. we're, we're, we are so going off topic from the book and everything like that, but that's fine because I have to share this with you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> during that time, I remember going to service and uh, a friend of mine that I used, did the Lion King with, his name is Charles Holt. Charles was a guest singer at the church that, that Sunday, and he sang a song called Rolling River God. And when he sang this song, it touched my heart so deeply that I burst into tears. I'd never heard a piece of music like that before. I had to get the recording of the, of the service so I could hear the song again. I listened to that song on the, during the days when we had um, iPods. That's how mm -hmm. long ago it was. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and every time I would listen to that song, I would cry because I, I was just crying. There was, I was crying so many tears for so many different reasons. And it opened me up in a way that I just will never, ever, ever forget. And I feel like the whole process made me more human. Wow. Made me more human. That's beautiful. Yeah. Music can do that. And I know you talk about that in the book as some of the pathways. And I think you even said that sometimes you didn't tell that story, which is a beautiful story, but that sometimes music is a, is a pathway to God and to peace and to calming down from your trigger. And mm -hmm. I know that you come and you mentioned Lion King, you come from a background of dance. You're a dancer. You're also a healer. And you talk about one of your specialties. And I know you actually have a community online called the Stephen Washington Experience Studio, right? So it's like a subscription uh, platform where people can get access to all of your movement classes and videos because you specialize in Qigong, mm -hmm. right? Qigong and Pilates. Qigong. I mean, Lee, your husband told me about your Qigong practice several years ago when I first met him. You know, I took a, a few of your online classes because I've always wanted to do that. What I wanted to ask you is because Qigong is basically mindful movement, right? And it's kind of centering you and grounding you and getting you back into your body, which is where the true power and spiritual connection and healing is found. I'm always talking about that on this show. And to me, it's almost a form of somatic expression. What I don't understand, just because I'm clueless, what is the difference between Qigong and Tai Chi? Great question. It's a common question. My understanding is that Tai Chi is just another form of Qigong. Oh. And that the difference between the two or one of the differences is that Tai Chi is you will take several movements and string them together, mm -hmm. almost like a dance. Yes. And uh, Qigong, we take one movement and we repeat it over and over oh. and over and over again. So that's one big distinction between the two. I believe it's still a practice to do for health and well-being as well as energy cultivation and circulation. Yeah. And is it the same thing? Because I did take a Tai Chi, uh, several Tai Chi classes. And what I found, and I'm wondering if the same thing happens in Qigong, there were these movements where you were almost building energy between your hands mm -hmm. and like building it and building it and then like putting it into your heart. And you, I literally was like, whoa. I mean, I, I could totally feel it because the movements were kind of, feeding and building the energy. Does the same thing happen in Qigong? Absolutely. All right, I'm definitely going to do this with you. I'm getting, <laughs> I'm getting on that uh, Stephen Washington experience. Well, good. I encourage you to do that and everyone else, because right now I'm offering a free 14-day uh, trial for, oh, you are? The, for the platform. So anyone oh. who's interested, just go to stephenwashingtonexperience.com and you can sign up and give it a shot for two weeks. We'd love to have you. All right. We're going to put that in the show notes. Great. The link to the Stephen Washington experience, uh, which is the website name too, uh, we will put in the show notes. I can't end our conversation without talking a little bit about your husband, Lee Harris, in particular, not talking about him per se, but talking about, he's told me about you, but you and I have never actually met before now. And 
I've always been curious. And I asked him, he's like, oh, you'll have to ask. You'll have to ask him. And this was years ago when he said that with his little British accent. But Lee, as you guys know, he's been on the show before. You probably will have his correct title, but I would call him a spiritual teacher, a psychic, and really a channel of this group of spiritual masters, spiritual entities that he that are called the Z's. And you can listen to the podcast, guys, that, I, that I've done with him to learn more about that. But the thing I want to talk about now is what it's like to be married to something like that. <laughs> like when you guys first got together, like were the Z's part of it? Did you know about what, what he was about before you met him in person? You know what I mean? Or was it something you discovered once you were already in relationship with him? Yeah. What happened? It's something that I, I didn't know. I knew that we both valued spirituality and that it was a, a central focus in, in, in our lives independently of one another. And I knew that when we got together, it was going to be something that could grow and develop and change. But I had no idea that he was a channeler. I had no idea that he was a, an intuitive. And it's funny that you asked this question because one of the things that we realized early on when we first started dating and, and seeing each other was that there was so much more than being significant others to one another. There's so much more to us we saw a potential for us to work together and collaborate. Uh, he walked into the Pilates studio, I was teaching at in Palo Alto around the time that we met, and he saw me teach, and he was just blown away because he could see my level of mastery with that. And he had some events in Australia that he was scheduled to do, and he wanted to have a movement component to it. And so he invited me to go with him to Australia. We'd only known each other literally a month, two months, maybe before something like that happened. It was, it was really magical, a really magical time. But I'll never forget during one of those events, those evening events that he did in Australia, I watched him channel for the first time. <laughs> and did you know before then or did he just start channeling? I mean, had he said, by the way, just so you know? Yeah, I think I knew, but I didn't really think much of it. Yeah, and I yeah. didn't know too much about channeling other yeah. than the fact that I had a friend's mother in high school who was a channeler and she did a couple of sessions for me and, and all that. So I, I wasn't opposed to it or I wasn't afraid of it or anything like that. I was, you know, but I remember that night watching him do what he did and it was just blown away and bless him. He, I think he was so accustomed to some people not being able to accept him because of that part of himself on some level he had an expectation that once i saw that that i might not that you were gonna bail him. yeah Aww, yeah and it, was, it was, and it was it was anything but that yeah it was anything Aww. but that yeah and so things just grew and developed from from there i would love see speaking of building faith if my husband who is the opposite of lee my nickname for him is senior root chakra like he is so <laughs> <clears throat> In this 3D. I mean, he's a wonderful man and I adore him, but he's Mr. Pragmatic. I think he's an empath, but he would never admit it. Well, that's the yin and the yang. You're, yes, you're, you're, definitely. You're his yin. <laughs> definitely. I'm all yin and yeah, he is yeah, yeah. heavy yang. But yeah. I've thought like, God, if, if I were married to someone like that, I mean, you're probably used to it now, but I would be asking, talk about building faith. I would be like checking in with disease. Like, Lee, listen where's the best place for us to live next? You know, what should we yeah. embark on this thing or not? You know, like how, how much of a role do the Z's have in your, the ones he channels the And it's such wisdom guys. I mean, it's, we all have access to that wisdom, but he just, they have this great, the Z's and Lee just have this beautiful way of, of uh, distilling it. Yeah. You now and articulating it. So how much of the Z's and, and the channeling play a role in your daily lives? It, well, the thing is, it's also integrated that yeah. it's, it's not so specifically like I'm talking to the Z's or I'm getting <laughs> advice from the Z's. It's also well integrated yeah. that it just flows effortlessly through. So yeah. it's not something that is really perceptible. Yeah, yeah. From the surface, you know, but it, but it, it's just integrated. It's all it's integrated. integrated. Mm -hmm. I was thinking like they could have officiated. It would have been interesting if they officiated at your wedding. <laughs> wouldn't that be fun oh that might be a little weird that might be a little scary <laughs> it was Lee, right like he's the groom one of the grooms and he's also being like i was laughing to myself this morning because i was thinking oh 
And it been felt like he would have jumped to the front of you and been like, okay, we're running the line, you know, sudden to jump to the side. Anyway, <laughs> this is how I entertain myself the story <laughs> in my mind. But yeah, you know, and you talked a little bit in your book about how, and I think this is so important, and I really wanted to highlight this in this conversation with you and get a little bit more from you about it is how important for your recovery, like like the the dynamics of living in relationship in recovery, because, you know, one of the things we talk about on this show all the time are the millions of different ways it comes up so often that our partner is our greatest teacher, obviously, but also part of the reason they're our greatest teacher is because they're our greatest trigger. And just by nature, a relationship is going to bring up so many growth edges, so many triggers, so many tough things that you have to kind of face about yourself or work with within yourself or navigate or negotiate between the two of you. That's why they say, you know, while you're in recovery, I don't remember what the time frame is, but you're not supposed to be in a relationship while you're working, actively working your recovery or newly in recovery. You're supposed to be really solid in your recovery before you get into a relationship. And I'm sure this is one of the reasons as well as heartbreak and trigger, you know, other things that might trigger a relapse. But I'm wondering what you could add about some of the challenges, but even more specifically, some of the strategies that you've developed or discovered as you've moved through relationship in recovery, because this is a tricky thing for people who are in recovery. It is. And that thing that you just mentioned is that, that suggestion to not get involved in any intimate or romantic relationships in the first year of sobriety, in large part because it's just important to keep the focus on yourself and your own health and well-being. And also, you don't really know you're, you don't really know who you are. I mean, there's who you are when you're in active addiction is drastically different from who you are in recovery, especially once you begin the healing process and doing the work. We do change. There's certain things about us that don't change, but there's certain things that do change. And it's been a remarkable experience being married in recovery and being with, with my husband. I think I, I got very lucky to connect with someone who was willing to do the work that's involved in being in a partnership. I'm an emotionally healthy partnership anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, one of the things that's worked well for us is the fact that we communicate, we communicate pretty well. Communication, we say, is one of our superpowers. And that's so important. It's just communication. Another thing that, that, comes to mind about my unique situation with Lee and our relationship was we come from very different backgrounds. I think the fact that I'm African-American and he's not, the fact that I'm American, he's British, those two things bring a lot to the table. I went through a lot of trauma early in my life, and that has created some interesting things to navigate and to heal from. And so it's so important to do the work individually and then together in order to to work through that stuff because it's not easy stuff to navigate and none of us come with an instruction manual as to how to do it a lot of things get said that you wouldn't say again if you could take it back and a lot of things get done that you wouldn't necessarily do if you could do it over again fertile ground for growth and what i would advise anyone to do is to not do all that work by yourself. Yeah, get support. Yeah, get support. Like I've had a therapist, you know, through most of my life at, you know, various times with different people. And I've just started working uh, with another therapist again, but this time focusing on trauma and doing some somatic experiencing work. Oh, yay. Yeah. And doing and neurofeedback. I've been doing a lot of neurofeedback and those mm -hmm. things have been helping me because I've just at 51, I understand that there's a way, a certain way that I relate to the world because of my experiences and I need to get more perspective on it. I need to get more tools so that I can have more freedom and more choice within that rather than just responding and reacting to, to the world and uh, dissociating and things like that when I get triggered. So it's been, it's been such an amazing experience to, to do this work. And that's the thing, the, the longer, 
the longer we're alive, the longer we're in recovery, the more experiences we're going to have, the more opportunities to grow and change, the more challenges we're going to get, the more layers of the onion we're going to peel back. And sometimes it feels like you're ripping a Band-Aid off. But the most important thing is to not, to not give up, to not give up on yourself, to love yourself, to forgive yourself and keep showing up. Yeah. And, and aren't we lucky if, if you're, since we're talking about relationships, to have someone in your life who loves and cares about you enough to, to be there and be a witness to it all and to do the work with you and to do their own work too, to do their own work as well. Because, because we all, we all need work. Yes. That is so important. Apart and together. Yeah, we do. And I think we can end on, I mean, everything you said was beautiful, but one of the things that stood out to me that you said sort of toward the end of your book and that you alluded to just now is that we talk so much, especially when we're healing our past and learning to integrate that healing, not only to heal, but integrate that healing into our lives, that so much of that work is about forgiving those who have trespassed against us, right? Forgiving, forgiving. But self-forgiveness is something, forgiving yourself for the ways you've screwed up, for the mistakes you've made, for the places you've been blind or ignorant or self-sabotaging or hurt other people or made mistakes or fell off the wagon or all of those things that forgiving yourself was something that, that I think isn't talked about enough. And you really beautifully spoke to that in your book. So I, I just want to highlight that. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's important. It's important. And that uh, forgiving yourself is important. And sometimes it's one of the hardest things to do. But I think it's really important work because we're all doing the best we can at any given time. We're all doing the best we can with what we have. It's, I know we hear it a lot, but it's true. Yeah. We are. We're all just walking ourselves and each other home, as Ram Das would say. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for walking with us and for doing and dancing with us and doing all the beautiful work in the world that you're doing. And make sure to check out the Stephen Washington experience. We have the link in there. The book, once again, is called Recovering You, Soul Care and Mindful Movement for Overcoming Addiction. Lots of tools and tips and um, strategies and even specific Qigong moves for doing different things that will facilitate um, your soul and your recovery. So thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm going to come play with you and Lee soon. Love that. Thank you.